The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Fast Money starts right now. We start off with that market sell-off. What a sell-off it was. The Dow was up as much as 352 points before cutting those gains and falling 566 points at the lows of the day, ultimately ending the session lows uh, down about 250 points. Look no further for the culprit than the Fang Inferno. When these stocks turned, the rest of the market followed suit. These former leaders losing a combined market cap of nearly a half a trillion dollars this month alone. So has the market lost Fang? And if so, how much worse could this selling get, Guy? Yeah, of course. Yes, the market's lost. Absolutely has lost Fang. I mean, you lost Facebook and Google over the summer. I mean, you've seen Google go from basically $1,300 to where it's trading now. You saw Facebook go from 205 to 165 in seven minutes on this show when they reported earnings. Now it's obviously much lower than that. You lost Netflix seemingly today, and you lost Amazon over the last couple of days. So you've lost Fang 100%. How much worse can it get? You know, I said a couple weeks ago when the S&P was down 5, 5.5%, I thought there was another 7 or 8% to the downside. I'll stand by that. So we probably have, I don't know, 2.5%, 3% left, and then we'll have a conversation. But it doesn't end. Today wasn't the crescendo that it ends on, in my opinion. Yeah. Steve, what do you think? You need fear. You need panic for a bottom. Uh-huh. Jack, I think we've got Jack. <laughs> Jack, no, I don't you think you have panic. So? You think we have fear and panic? Well, I don't think we've I, seen panic I, yet. I haven't seen I it yet. I think we have both. I've seen, guys asking, I've seen guys asking where they step in and buy still. You don't want people asking where they buy. But that you last want- half hour today, or the last 15 minutes, let's say. Started to get there. Right. Started to get there. Yeah, was what, it- the, what was that like on the floor? It was getting a little panicky, but not throw them all out panic, not sell everything panic. You want to get a real flush where they're dumping everything. But weren't they dumping everything at one point? I realized it, it all turned out kind of happy by the end of the day. Like, it's a big few. We had a V-shaped recovery on an intraday basis. By the way, why were we rallying so much this morning? We should get into that because I don't really understand where that came from. But bottom line here is I get the sense that this market, especially by 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, trading floors all over the city or all over the world were actually saying, oh, my God, it's actually happening because we don't see this. This does seem indiscriminate. Now, I realize that we've seen the machines push the market around now for how many years? Maybe a couple to a point where people, I don't think, are reacting the way they might have on a day like today, two or three years ago. But I think you're starting to see panic. And let's face it, you see a lot of stocks that are now at 2007, kind of first quarter level, some all the way back to 2016. It's a lot uglier below the surface than it is on the indices. I mean, the thing is that it, investors aren't just abandoning growth stocks. They're also not really going to value yet. I mean, we saw industrials really have a hard time in today's session, followed by, you know, this is after a month of sort of difficulties faced by that sector. So at what point do we find the leadership finally step in? We haven't gotten to that point, gotta, it feels you gotta like. Try, you got to test the February lowest. you got to be at 2532, okay. right, at that level, and really see what people are made out of at that point. You don't want to see a little buy off the bottom in an intraday basis. You want to see them plumbing them, close on the lows, and have people think overnight, what am I going to do tomorrow morning? 
I mean, maybe that's it's a, panic. Well, maybe it's a good sign that we're not seeing money automatically rotate into some of these other sectors. Although we're seeing it to some degree in automakers and home builders at this point. We, we did in but financial, it, but, so them too. Sure. At one point, I looked at my screens and I started doing some of the numbers. And Ford was up, you know, on a three-day about 17% GM12. I don't know where we closed, uh, but ultimately they gave a lot of today's move back, not the three days before it. But but I, I just think when we saw the market turn, we we saw every sector break down. We saw retail. We saw financials. Financials, which which really, uh, even after rallying 2% earlier in the day, were still 10% below their 200-day. So to me, I just think technically, actually, the market does have a, a, a basis in fear right now because I don't think that there's any tech, technical support. Steve's talking about a very real level on the S&P. I agree with that. I think that's a level we, we probably have to test so people are kind of like, hey, let's get it over with. But a day like today feels like people still don't know where it's going to land. Well, it's interesting. And I, so that level that Steve said at 25.32, give or take, is about, what, 3.5%, 4%. So it sort of lines up with where my head is at, and we'll see if it happens. But it's interesting, you know, when... When the machines that we all talk about take the market higher, we say the market's going up for fundamental reasons, which may or may not be true. I have no sure. idea. But when the same machines sell it off and things go down faster than they go higher, we've had that conversation. It's because there's panic. You know what? I've said it many times. I'll say it again. You have panic buying as much as you have panic selling. You just never put the word ahead of buying because it seems Jason, to make sense. It's called FOMO. Yeah. Whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. But my, my point is, you know, maybe the market's going down for the right reasons. And we've outlined the right reasons now for months. Finally, the market's trying to take a look. And the Fed is absolutely one of those reasons. But again, a but lot then, of the tariff then, talk. Then the question is, is it a buy at that 2532? And that's the point, is that you want to see people reassess and say, okay, now I'm going to get back in. But just to say I've tested that level is not good enough. You want to see all those reasons. Yeah. Is it going to hold? Is that what's pricing it in? And I, I don't believe it's, it's priced in the worst I hate coming into a Monday when it's up, especially down on a Friday, because it just feels like, all right, that, that's not going to be able to hold. Right. Yeah. It's just not going to be able to hold. And we did have a little bit of merger Monday with the Red Hat deal, but uh, nothing else beside that. To me, it was very interesting, the Trump administration talking about tariffs yeah. again. And I don't know really why they did that. I'm wondering why they did that, because... Clearly, the market doesn't like that kind of rhetoric, right? And so, did they leak that out, or was it? Did it? They didn't make a statement. It was just a. It was just out there, right? I don't know where it came from. I, but it was interesting to me because you know this president has chosen to use the the stock market as a benchmark for his performance, and knowing that the stock market really hates these tariff discussions, it was surprising to me, so, so, especially ten days before the election, nine days, however many days. Right. That was I don't know what that was. I think about. he's just playing poker. Gonna... I think it's another shot at trying to game it before to let uh, President Xi know that he is serious. I think it was all. But that's that's my issue, Steve, because I I actually think that some of the fear for this market is coming from the fact that nobody sees a bottom. Nobody sees an end to this. And what came out today was, oh, wow. So not only are we going to slap 25% on these guys, but we're trying to come up with another list. Is there anything left? And, and, and for an administration that seems to be actually very proud of itself as it relates to trade tariff. I mean, we heard on press conferences today, president's done everything he, he, you asked him to do, including on the trade front, which means they feel like they're, they're, they actually could be vindicated on this no matter what happens. Meanwhile, look at the stock market, which we all know is part of where the scorecard is. Uh, and I point to small cap stocks again, which were the but you barometer know, for the, success. The, Let me tariffs, just finish. The, trade has been a bipartisan issue, though. So that's the, the only issue with that is I'm when not, you say... Uh, but no, no, my point is, when you say, is it a win or not, why is he pushing it, 
It's a bipartisan issue, so I don't think it's flat-out midterms. My point is simply from the market scorecard, not where I'm talking about. It's where my conversation was going to. The IWMs, which at one point were up 45% off the election, right. are now up 22% annualized over two years. Well, scorecard. Is that the best scorecard? I mean, 22% annualized over two cumulative years. Cumulative or annualized? Annualized. So 22 annualized is decent. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. Cumulative. Okay. You, oh, I, I, mean, I mean about 11.5%, 12% annualized, which to me is nothing extraordinary for people that are saying, hey, look at the market. Well, after this major pullback, there's a lot of stocks that I would not be flying a flag and saying, hey, things are going so well based upon the performance of the stocks. All right. Uh, for more on today's sell-off, let's bring in Rebecca Patterson with Bessemer Trust. She joins us on the Fast Line. Rebecca, thanks for joining us. Um, want you to weigh in on what we've seen, not just today, but, you know, the past seven, eight trading sessions. Yeah, I, I think you guys are giving a lot of good color on some of the technical parts of this. Let me try to pull it back to what I'd say is the fundamental you know, when President Trump got elected, we got a lot of stimulus. We got a lot of deregulation, incredibly business-friendly. And then basically in April this year, we saw the U.S. market diverge from the rest of the world as trade went from little pieces and rhetoric to reality, especially with China. And the U.S. outperformance versus the rest of the world really started then. So here we are now, and inflation is coming through from a tight labor market, but there is now the potential for the trade to also cause inflation uh, increases on top of the stimulus-created inflation. So the Fed is on a course to raise interest rates, keep inflation under control, at the same time that the rest of the world is getting hit more by a lot of factors, including trade, and slowing down. And so we've gone from reflation to fears of stagflation. And I think the market has been, over the last couple of weeks, pricing that in just in a very violent way. Is that unfounded or is that founded, in your view? Look, I think directionally it's founded, um, but I think the magnitude of this move, you know, we can discuss whether this is panic or not, but when I look at a variety of metrics, um, we're seeing some of these sentiment metrics back at levels that we saw in the debt crisis of 2011 or even in the aftermath of 9-11. So in terms of risk appetite among investors, some of the levels we're seeing today suggest a huge dislocation that you know, global growth at 2.93 percent um, GDP growth doesn't add up with risk appetite that's basically down to crisis levels. So I think the market technically short term is oversold versus the economy, but directionally to have it reprice a bit is not shocking to me given what's going on with trade and the impact on the rest of the world that's now feeding back into earnings guidance. The headline that we saw, um, you know, mid-afternoon, Rebecca, about the Trump administration possibly putting tariffs on the remaining goods coming from China, that really helped fuel the market sell-off. And does that change your view if that actually comes to fruition in terms of where you see the markets and where they should be going? Again, given the magnitude of this sell-off versus where the U.S. and the global economy are, I think a lot of bad news on the China trade war is discounted. But if we were to see President Xi and President Trump have a constructive dialogue in November, if we were to avoid this getting worse, uh, I think you could see the market really love that. If you got a slightly softer tone from the Fed, we're watching data, we're aware of the financial markets, anything of that ilk, which I'm not looking for, but it's something to watch for. If you got that and China not worsening, maybe not getting better quickly, but not worsening from here, I think you'd have a stock market that's significantly higher. 
Uh, it's not our base case going into next year, but we still don't think this sell-off is the beginning of a recessionary sell-off. The economy is doing too well for that. I think this is a correction that's coming because the Fed suggested a slightly more aggressive path, and we're starting to feel more of the trade war here at home in the U.S. through earnings guidance. Are you buying the pullback? Um, no, we're not. We, we are staying with the equity exposure we have. We are neutral versus what our clients would consider a long-term benchmark. So whatever their long-term allocation is, we're holding on to that. We're not reducing risk. Um, and we have all of our portfolio managers looking for opportunities as things sell off. If there's a great company that they thought was too expensive before, they might do a little buying on this dip, but we're not looking to add risk at this juncture. We think we're late cycle, but we don't think this is the end of the cycle. Rebecca, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank Rebecca you. Patterson Thanks, everybody. of Bessemer Trust. So two, two things stand out. Sticking to a neutral in the markets, not buying this dip per se, uh, and also that much of the China bad news is priced into the market. Yeah, agree, that was disagree? the most important thing, I think. You I think agree. You agree. I agree. Both. There's an asymmetry there, I yeah. think, if, the, if the, they were to come to some sort right. of agreement. I more to the upside, yeah. I think one of Rebecca's great points there was, though, the feedback loop that's coming back into U.S. earnings, actually, so we're getting a response in U.S. earnings, even if it's just on guidance. And in terms of business confidence, that is actually a leading indicator, because that's ultimately going to feed into CapEx. Uh, and I would just remind that the PMIs last week were awful. Um, uh, Germany printed at 52.7. This is the best economy in Europe, and it's one that hasn't been this level since 2016, first quarter. China reports private PMIs on Friday expected 50. If it prints below that, that's a contracting economy, and that is something that people would be very concerned about. She named a couple of different things. She said trade. She said softer Fed. But what yeah. she didn't name is the other one, midterm elections. If the House doesn't flip, the Senate doesn't flip, that could be a huge tailwind to the so Republican economy. Republican holds on both. Republican holds, which people are just starting to say or chatter about that that might be a possibility because all the polls have said the opposite. Do you think that, that the markets are reflecting actually Flipping. a Democrat yeah. Both victory? Both the House and I, no, the Senate? No, no. I think they're the reflecting house. The, the, the House. But out of the 24 seats that wow. they need, they're protecting 12. And in the Senate, I don't think there's a chance of that flipping. Yeah. No, I think the midterm elections are a big deal. I think the president also has set up potentially losing one of the houses. And he has said, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, your beautiful 401ks are all going to go away if you don't go out and vote Republican. So there's now there are two fall guys or gals. One comes in the form of the Fed, mm -hmm. which is easy for him to blame, and the other will come in the form of the midterm election. So if you're asking me, do I think it's over? No, I don't think it's over to the downside. Well, our next guest says, do not get back in the water just yet. The trouble is only getting started for the markets. Chartmaster Carter Worth is over at the Plasma to break it all down. Hi, Carter. Hi, sure. I thought I'd just put it in historical context. So that removes my opinion, all the opinions that we've heard uh, thus far, and just look at the facts and see if we can figure out the way forward. Markets have sell-offs, just as in downtrends, they have rebounds. Let's look at the current sell-off and try to put it in the context of fact. Here is the current sell-off. You can see it. Here is the January-February sell-off. The current sell-off as all will know, is a total of 11%. This one was about 12. These happen all the time. In fact, here's how often they happen. Since 1927, when the data begins, there have been 218 5% plus corrections. The reason to use 5%, a lot of people put stop losses in at the 5% level. Risk managers come over to portfolio managers and say, hey, let's pull it in a little bit. Once you go past 5, you typically go further. How much further? Of the 218 5% plus corrections, the Average magnitude is 11. This is the current sell-off, excuse me, and the average is 12, right? And look at the duration. Of those 218, they last about 40 sessions. That's two months. This has lasted 25. I mean, the word yawn comes to mind. This is just totally average. 
Here's the thing, though. We're coming from all-time highs. Are we going to just skate away with a totally average sell-off? I don't think so. Um, there it is, 11%. Let's put it in the context of the entire decade. We have lived in this channel. And in fact, if you can see this, we literally bounced off the bottom in the financial crisis. We touched it again when, in 2011 when we got the debt downgrade. We ricocheted off the top. And then when we blew out through the high and we're sitting here on the top of the channel. Now, can you draw down to the middle or could you draw down to the bottom? Let's put that in context, just a little historical context. So yes, a decade up, but we've endured two. One, down 21.6%, down 15.2%. Why can't we still do that kind of thing and, quote, call it a bull market? Call it whatever you want, but drawdowns are a part of the process. This is a major sell-off, 21%. This is 16 I think we have the prospect of doing this kind of thing. So let's look at levels, the middle of the channel and the bottom of the channel. And then, of course, first start with the lows of February 9th, which you all were talking about earlier. So where are we to get to? 25.32. Um, Grasso, you were talking about this guy down 3%. That could happen on the open tomorrow. Nothing to even talk about. And that would represent a 14% decline from the peak. Now, what if we go to the midpoint of that channel? That's another 7%. That would take us to 2,500. Or the bottom, meaning these are the numbers that are perfectly reasonable. And then one could say, well, how is that possible? Is that a bear, bull? Forget about what you call it. Here is the long-term channel. Let's look at those levels. If we go to, just to, the February low, we're looking at this. That's nothing. Let's go to the other level. We go to the midpoint of the channel. Then we're looking at this, 2,500. And were we to go to the bottom of the channel, just again, living within this channel that we've lived in the entire time until we blew out to the top, the bottom, that's it. That all that would be. And it sounds like a, some sort of Armageddon, but it's happened before. It's happened twice in the last decade, and it's perfectly likely to happen this time as well. We need Carter to come on over. No question. Carter, come on over. I mean, without question. Thanks, Stephanie, for bringing the chair in. So in terms of deciding whether you think it is likely to be worse in terms of the within the span of, of average right. versus not as bad, um, what are the characteristics of this particular market that make you think it's going to be worse? So the, the drawdown started months ago. That's the first thing, right? This didn't happen out of nowhere. Semiconductors have been declining for six months. Banks, industrials, six, seven, eight months. Many stocks peaked in January. Key industrial and financial stocks, key material stocks. So the bifurcation starts, but it doesn't look so bad at the top because you're being held up by a few super cap stocks. Bifurcation is almost always resolved like this, which is the weak get weaker. They do shocking things, which we're seeing. The chemicals and the building stocks literally have a super leg down while the FANG, we call it that or whatever, idiosyncratic growth starts to stumble. And so that process is as you get closer to the midway point. But ultimately, we still have a lot of big stocks that are sitting not far off their highs that haven't really given ground. I suspect when it's done, you have much more deterioration at the strong end of the market, not just FANG, but expanse of the visas in the United Healthcare, things like that. And then at the weekend, you have uh, real capitulation. You could say we've already had that in things like Ford Motor, but that's the problem. When you're really done, you don't get bounces out of Ford Motor, right? Ford Motor goes to a 2P, doesn't linger at a 4 or 7 or wherever it's sitting right now. The fact that we've gotten these rallies out of these dead names. That means there's hope still alive. And, and this is the final sort of crime or sin. Every time we rally the way we did today, yep. it just Today was a sin. 
It, Today was a cent, well, folks. Okay, you can and use we, a different word, meaning not have people trapped. You have them trapped at the top right. for the breakout. And you know, we, we read it, anything you read, we're going to bounce, we're going to bounce. Why do we have to bounce? Right. Everyone's playing for a bounce. Because we've got down 10%. That's nothing. So, Carter, since we've lived above that trend that you point out, above that channel that you pointed out for quite some time now, do you lean towards the 7% mid-range 2,500 or the lower range? Because in my book, I would think that we buy ourselves a little bit of room because we've lived above the trend. He sounded like a 2,300 kind of guy. He did sound like that. <laughs> we now, we didn't even talk about breaking it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so, so we'll save that for the, the sin show. If you overshoot, right. you have to undershoot. And that takes you down into the... So you think below 2,300 is a likelihood? I mean, w w remember, that would be a normal, quote, 20% decline. It happens all the time. Well, if you think uh, about... I can come back and show you all the 20% plus declines, and when you look at those, <laughs> well, what has really overshot? You, you know, well, arguably Amazon, so, arguably NVIDIA, arguably well, Netflix, well, you know, well, so... Those are, the real overshoots are things like BlackRock down, down 39, 40%. Okay, but on the way State up... State Street down 45. On the way up, yes. So you guys talked about it. There is a, seg a reciprocal of capitulation or panic selling. And I don't think there's panic. Is panic buying or FOMO? That's exactly what happened. We had the highest RSI reading ever recorded. Think about that, ever. Big superlative for the MSCI, all country, and the S&P in January. Wow. Never had we been that overbought on a weekly basis. It was simultaneous. Back. Right, so that, yeah. that's what FOMO or capitulatory buying mm -hmm. is, panic, and this is just the beginning of the other side, I think. I could listen to Carter Worth talk all night long. Me he's certainly in the Pantheon. <laughs> and, uh, no, he's, he's, he's in his, his own, own. He's above the Pantheon. Of course he is. The Parthenon in the Pantheon. Of course he is. Carter Worth. Carter, thank Thanks, you. Guys. Carter Braxton Worth, a cornerstone. Coming up, much more in the wild day on Wall Street. And as the sell-off turns into a full-blown correction, investors are running for cover. The traders will tell you where you can hide out. Plus, the other big story weighing on stocks, the trade wars, the fear of new tariffs looming over the markets. As China and the U.S. failed to reach common ground, we'll tell you what that could mean for stocks. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Seven out of 11 sectors in the S&P 500 closing in correction today. Despite the chaos, a number of stocks are still holding up. Bob Pisani is breaking down those sell-off survivors for us at the NYSE. Hey, Bob. Survivors is what we all feel like at this point, Melissa. It was another late-day sell-off, but it was a very split tape. Cyclical names like technology and industrials were down big, but consumer names were mostly in the green. So Procter & Gamble, Walgreens, Johnson & Johnson, Coca-Cola, all in the green and for the most part remained in the green even during the midday sell-off. Other defensive names, so pharmaceuticals like Merck and Pfizer, housing-related stocks like Home Depot, food stocks, Kellogg's, General Mills, for example, they were all up. All right, so what does it all mean? In terms of sectors, it's a defensive move for sure. So consumer staples, utilities, 
even gold, all in the green this month, remarkable given that industrials and technology, the two groups most sensitive to global growth and trade-related issues, are both down double digits. That's a remarkable divergence there. For investors in broader themes, it's again reviving the whole growth versus value story. So growth, which is mostly tech, down notably this month, about 12%. Value, mostly consumer staples, banks and energy, down, but not as much, about 7%. And it would be a lot better performer if it wasn't for the fact that it has a heavy weighting in energy, which is down. So value tends to outperform in periods when growth is stronger. And traders argue that may or may not be the market we're in now. My feeling is the jury is still very much out on this debate. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Bob. Thank you, Bob Pisani at the NYSE. So with such a volatile market, where should investors hide out? We thought we'd ask the traders. Grosso, you're going classic defense here. Classic defense. So you go into XLU, which is the ETF for utilities. Since October 3rd, that's when the market started selling off. The market's down over 11%. Utilities are actually up 4%. So utilities seem to be like a best defensive play. You're going fast food. I, yeah, look, casual food, casual dining, but you're definitely McDonald's and Starbucks. Look, McDonald's, while the bar is always low for these guys, or it has been on same-store sales, they had a nice beat on same-store sales. They just reported they're continuing to innovate, according to, uh, I think, both health trends and, and just where the millennial group is going. But ultimately, this is still a global story. And McDonald's has been very defensive. McDonald's actually rallied about 5% in October, to name my stand. Starbucks it was so overdone. At this point, it's had a major rally back. If anything, Starbucks might be a victim just of some technical correction in its own shares uh, because I think it got oversold, but now maybe is a, a little lofty. These also feel like they have the tailwinds of being sort of idiosyncratic stories. I mean, McDonald's yeah. had really great earnings. It performed well off those earnings, and Starbucks is a turnaround story in progress at this point. Do you see value in these stocks? Um, McDonald's, I mean, it's done great, but in terms of value, I, it's not so cheap to me. I mean, it's not so, but I do think it's somewhat insulated from some of the things that are, you know, spooking the market. But I probably wouldn't buy it right Spooking. here. Spooking. I mean, nice word. Oh, we're we're Halloween, Halloween week. Yeah. Yeah. Halloween nice job by you. Everything. Love Halloween. Yeah. No, you don't. You don't do the costume. By the way, we, we talked Survivors, Guy. Do you have an opinion about Survivor, the Street band? Survivors? The band the Survivors. Band Weren't survivor. they the ones that did that horrible Rocky song? Yes. Eye of the Tiger. Eye of the Tiger. Anyway, we digress. But it is one of the worst five songs Probably, ever written. I'm yes. getting a lot of hate for that. But back to McDonald's and Starbucks. <laughs> Cafe Max on fire. I, so where's my hide? I'm not big on that phrase, but I will say that Big Cap Pharma's done pretty well. You look at Eli Lilly, for example, has had a heroic move as every opportunity to sell off in a meaningful way, given that move, and we find ourselves, I don't know, 6 or 7% off an all-time high. And Pfizer drug, again green today, has done really well ever since President Trump tweeted about Basically, I'm paraphrasing again, but big cap pharma ripping us all off. That stock's been basically a rocket ship since. I think they still make sense in this environment. How do you think about places to hide out? Well, I think of, like, what are the least problem children in my portfolio now? And, and Anthem really comes to mind. I mean, this is one that obviously is, is not in any way a China trade story. They actually, in terms of rates, uh, they would actually do better. They have a tremendous float from the insurance business. But I think that... It's not super cheap, but the business is doing well. They're just sort of grinding it out. And I don't think we'll see on, uh, I think they're going to report on Wednesday. But I don't know, this is the kind of name that's somewhat insulated and, you know, somewhat tied to employment. So uh, I, like the, I like the fundamentals here, but it's not rock bottom cheap. Still ahead, we will have much more on today's big reversal. The S&P officially closing in a correction. Guy Dami here will break down his three tips for telling when a sell-off is about to get worse. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC. First in business worldwide. Much more Fast Money right after this.
Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Trade war fears spooking stocks today, sending the Dow down almost 600 points at its lows. Our Eamon Javers is live at the White House with the very latest. Eamon. Yeah, hi, Melissa. White House officials saw that Bloomberg headline this afternoon that spooked the markets about the possibility of the president going all in on tariffs from China and imposing tariffs on all of the remaining imports from China if he doesn't get what he wants from these negotiations with the Chinese over the next month or so. Uh, but officials here insisted today uh, that there was nothing new in the president thinking, emphasizing that he's been, this has been effectively a live threat since July or earlier in the summer when the president began to talk about imposing additional tariffs. Take a listen to what the president said to Joe Kernan back in July, essentially the same thing. Here's what he said then. Would you ever get to 500, though? It, we've I'm got ready the, to go to 500. With, we've got with the midterms on so the horizon. What's the stock market? Uh, well, I actually there? think that's, well, if it does, it does. Look, I'm not doing this for 20%? politics. I'm doing this to do the right thing for our country. We have been ripped off by China for a long time. And I told that to President Xi. So the president there saying he's willing to go to 500. That's effectively all of the imports, $500 billion worth of imports from China to the United States. The president saying back in July he was willing to put tariffs on. Here's what he said about it in September as well. And if there's a retaliation against our farmers and our industrial workers, our ranchers, if any of that goes on, we're going to kick in another $257 billion. Uh, and that'll be also a 25% we don't want to do, but we probably will have no choice. So, Melissa, the White House saying today there are no new developments here in the president's thinking. This has been a live threat to go to $500 billion uh, in tariffs, and, and the president considers it to continue to be a live threat right now. And the question is whether or not he's ever, ever going to execute on that threat. It's been pending for several months now. What is the threshold at which the White House is going to make the decision to go ahead and impose those tariffs? That is an unknown at this point. So the markets got scared again today by something that had already been out there, floated out there since the summertime. Right. Um, but at the same time, Eamon, as we draw closer to the end of the year, it seems like there are fewer and fewer opportunities for the U.S. and China to actually talk. The next one could be the President Trump, President Xi meeting uh, right. on the sidelines of the summit next next month. Are we getting any sort of developments about that, if there are preliminary talks going on between uh, the two countries? Well, the assumption was that the Chinese, and this is just an assumption, conventional mm -hmm. wisdom in Washington, that the Chinese really wouldn't want to make any moves before the election because they wanted to see if the president will be weakened politically in next week's midterm election. So the 
assumption was they wouldn't do anything before early November. And then now the focus is really on that end of November time frame at the G20 in Argentina. Uh, the two men, we are told, are likely to meet, uh, but we don't know necessarily what the status is of negotiations behind the scenes, whether they're uh, prepared to unveil any new concessions on either side at that meeting. So we're going to have to keep an eye on that one, and uh, we'll be down in Argentina covering it. should be a fascinating session in the G20. Yep. Sure will. Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers reporting from the White House for us, and I think Eamon laid it out really well. But this had been a live threat since July, and yet the markets, this tells you we're having the debate about whether there's fear and panic in the markets. As soon as that headline hit, we saw the markets go lower. There was fear about yeah, this no actually question, coming, right. Those becoming absolutely right, correlated. not yeah. threat to an actuality. Right. I'm, you know, I'm hoping this sort of plays out like uh, NAFTA or USMCA, whatever they call it now, you know, where he was kind of, you know, was a tough negotiator and then ultimately Leanne worked it out. This is a more complex and a much bigger deal. But um, I don't know. I think that he, he, I think that his interest in having the market do better and the economy do well is going to be very important in the negotiation. I, I just think that this is not your father's trade dispute. This is this is all about you know technology. This is about technology transfer. It's about technology theft. It's about uh, you know global security. Who's going to control the internet? Who's going to control uh, cyberspace for the next century? And I don't think we're going to give a whole lot of ground on that. And and therefore, I'm not sure we should. Um, therefore, I, I do think that this is something that gets a little bit uglier. Meanwhile, again, I point to the macro data around the rest of the world that we are seeing an impact from trade, and yet we're not really seeing it in our data yet, and that's the big concern. Although Leesman had this interesting survey where they scoured through all the company conference calls from earnings season, they yeah, found that 19 percent mentioned tariffs negatively on the company conference calls. That's, I mean, if you told me that a fifth of the, you know, the fifth of companies reporting that had conference calls so far in earnings season said that tariffs were negative. That's a pretty big number. Yeah, and again, the president may be correct. We, maybe we've been getting off, ripped off blindly for the last three or four decades. It might be true. I have no idea, but there are ramifications for that. But it's interesting what Karen said, you know, maybe with the market going lower, and I'm not suggesting this is what she meant, but implicit in that is that if President Trump wants to make a deal, there's a deal to be made. Mm -hmm. Why would the Chinese make a deal at this point? Now our market's going down as well. Their midterm election's coming up. Theirs are going down yeah, more. Uh, you know what? But they're... Listen, I all know we think that they're the same as us, and they look at winning and losing the same way we do. I don't think they do. I think that's right. I also think they have a lot more levers to pull. Coming up, much more in today's sell-off. The S&P 500 now officially in a correction, down more than 10% from its late September high. Guy Dami here will tell you how to know if the sell-off is about to go from bad to worse. Plus, General Electric touching its lowest level nearly a decade ahead of its earnings report tomorrow. With the company's dividend in question, should investors fear more pain ahead? More Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. General Electric sinking to its lowest level in nearly a decade as the embattled industrial giant gears up to report earnings tomorrow. Let's get to Morgan Brandon for all the details. Hi, Morgan. Hey, Melissa. Three big things in focus for GE when it reports those results tomorrow morning before the bell. Number one, first public comments from new CEO Larry Culp, the first outsider to run GE in its 126-year history. Now, he took over abruptly at the start of the month, highly respected CEO due to those high returns that he delivered at Danaher. Expect an early outline of his plans to accelerate a turnaround. Details, though, probably not going to get those until early 2019. Number two, guidance. More pain and power means GE will fall short of previous 2018 earnings and free cash flow guidance. Now, the street has already priced in an EPS miss for this year. 88 cents is the consensus. 
But cash is going to be key, especially since that's already been shrinking dramatically over the past two years. That brings us to number three, potentially the biggest, the dividend. Is Culp going to cut or suspend it? Now, it was already halved last November, but given the laundry list of charges, issues, a fresh cut under a new CEO, it might actually be welcomed, though the details going to matter if we see this, especially since shares are still widely held for that payout. Bottom line, this may be less about the quarter, more about the future, especially since the stock is down another 36% this year. And Melissa, I would just note it actually reversed course today at end of the day down 1%, hitting lows that we haven't seen since July of 2009. Some of this might be gearing up for that earnings report tomorrow morning. I also think some of it is actually some of these China trade headlines because we saw a lot of those big uh, industrial juggernauts trade lower on those headlines. Yep. Back over to you. Morgan, thanks. Morgan Brennan joining us from New York City. Tim, you're a shareholder, so what are you looking for? Near-term clarity on these numbers. Forget mm -hmm. 2019. The market needs to know what cash flow looks like. So as we, we outline, whether it's the dividend or, you know, the, the, there's an argument, and I think J.P. Morgan makes this one very well, that the, the bulls still have a uh, unrealistic goal for where liquidity is and that a dividend cut is not a silver bullet. So um, I, I think right now the key is really to understand what the liabilities are as best we can understand the near to medium term. I don't care about 2019 right now. I care about the balance sheet. Are we most concerned about GE Capital? Some of the I, insurance I th issues that had sunk it before? I, I think they're going to give him a pass, call a pass on this one. I don't think they're, they're concerned about granular numbers. I think they're concerned about the div, the strategy, the power unit, yes. But this is Flannery's boat that sunk. So I think they're going to give him a pass this time. Not so much micro this earnings season around. Yeah, not so much what? Not so much micro this earnings season right. around. Well, he should kitchen sink it as much yeah, as he possibly yeah. can, right? The worse, the better. I think he should absolutely cut the dividend. It's sort of free to him. If they want to be a still dividend payer, you can pay a no, de minimis right, uh -huh. um, dividend. I don't think he should be giving guidance right now. Let it, I mean, he's got a lot of work to do. He just took the job. He just took the job. Now, ago. clearly, he's, no, I mean, he's been in the weeds in GE since he's board. been on the board. So, um, I, you know, it's not like he's coming in right fresh. But... I don't know why he needs to do that right away, especially if he cuts the dividend. I mean, the, I understand what you're saying. The debt might be spooked a little bit, but why not take your time and give a more thorough answer? Yeah. It's interesting. I don't think, I mean, I understand Flannery was there for a year, but I mean, the seeds for this move to this, these, this was created 10, 15 years ago. I mean, we can have that. I mean, that's a longer conversation. But Flannery had nothing to do with it. And quite frankly, I mean, Jeff Immelt was culpable, but he was not 100% to blame. So what happens tomorrow? I think there's a chance that if you do see the flush, and again, Morgan mentioned it, traded below 11 bucks tomorrow, that might be your opportunity, especially if it has one of these three or four times normal volume days. All right. For more on what to expect from GE tomorrow, let's take a look at the options market. Mike Coast in San Francisco with the action. Hey, Mike. Hi there. So the options market is implying a much larger than average 10.5% move is what it's implying on earnings tomorrow. Of course, as the price of the stock declines, those percentages mean less and less. So that's maybe not that surprising. Where a lot of that activity was focused was the November 10.5 puts. We saw over 26 and uh, 26 and a half thousand of those trade 
for just under 50 cents. So those are bets that GE could fall below that $10.5 strike price by about that 50 cents they're paying. So into the single digits by November expiration, which is going to come two weeks from this Friday. And with respect to the dividend, I would just add this. Normally, the options market gives you some sense or gives you some guidance on what it's expecting for the dividend in the future. Right now, there's no bid for a dividend next year. So that suggests that options markets are not confident that uh, there's going to be any substantial dividend starting with the next dividend period, which I think is in February. Wow. Mike, thanks. Mike Coe in San Francisco. For more options action, you can check out the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Still ahead, the S&P 500 spiraling into a correction today after stocks saw a huge midday reversal. So things are bad, but how do you know if it's about to go from bad to worse? Guy Dami's got some clues. Plus, IBM doubling down on the cloud with its $34 billion Red Hat acquisition. The CEOs of IBM, Red Hat, and rival Salesforce. Sitting now with CNBC's Jim Cramer moments ago, we'll bring you all those comments. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. It was another wild day on Wall Street. The Dow seeing a more than 900-point swing, falling nearly 600 points at the lows of the session, and ending the day down nearly 250 points. It's been an absolutely brutal month for the markets. The S&P 500 is down nearly 10 percent in October alone for its worst month since February 2009. Seven out of 11 sectors are in a correction or worse. So... With all these crazy moves, how do you know when the selling is about to go from bad to worse? Guys over at the Plasma with The More You Know. Guy. I started over at the smart board today because I'm moving very slowly. So here I am, and, and welcome. So how do you know when it's going to go from bad, which you could say we currently are, to worse, which maybe we will, maybe we won't? This is what I think. Fundamentals no longer matter. What does that mean? It means markets, whether it's people, machines, selling stocks indiscriminately. Now, we saw a little of that today in a name like Boeing, for example, down 7% and now down 15% it's making an all-time high. So maybe you're starting to see that. Number two, non-correlated asset spike. Well, obviously, you can make a point that maybe the Bitcoin is that, but I would focus on gold. You really haven't seen a spike in gold of any magnitude whatsoever. If you start seeing that, maybe that's a good sign that things are about to get a little bit worse. And number three... Latent complacency still exists. Not easy for me to say, but I'll try to show it to you on a chart. What does that mean? Yes, although the VIX has spiked, and I think we got up to 28, 29 today, and you can see the spike over the last month or so, we're nowhere near the levels we saw basically last year. So I would submit, despite the fact that the VIX is, is higher and is moving to the upside, there is still a latent complacency in the market because everybody, investors, machines, what have you, have been conditioned to think every dip is a buying opportunity. So if we see markets sell off indiscriminately regardless of fundamentals, if we see gold start to spike, and if we see the VIX maybe get up to that level of 50 or so, maybe that's when the worst is in fact in, and then maybe we can have a conversation about buying opportunity instead of what seems to be now a selling opportunity. Tim. Hey, guy, it's Tim. How are Hi, you? Hi, Tim. Um, you seem to have the eye of the tiger tonight. Uh, I'm, I'm curious <laughs> why no concern about credit deteriorating. That, yeah, that you to know me what? would that's, be one of the first fair. places I would go. I will tell you the answer to that because our crack crew in Englewood Cliffs called me up and said, listen, we'd like to do a more you know. And the first three that came to my mind were the three that I outlined. But I think you make a great point. If we start to see a deterioration in credit and high-yield credit, 
That clearly is a sign that things can go from bad to worse. I appreciate you bringing that up, Tim, and I'm certain there are three or four other things we could discuss, uh, but this small mind of mine just couldn't wrap it around. Karen, could you ask him a slightly easier question? I, have a, I answered yes. your question. A, Guy, do you I like have, the color blue? <laughs> You know, it's funny you say that. No, my, my <laughs> personal favorite color is somewhere between like a green and an orange. I'm not exactly sure what, what that what is, is, but that's green, right. green and orange. Wait, wait, I got a real question for you, Guy. All right, let's say you got a new dollar in today with the mandate invest in the market. What would you do? And you can sit on it, but what would you do? So a new dollar today, invest in the market. That's, I think that's a great question. If you have a time horizon of not the next six days, 60 days, or six months, I think some of these names are getting pretty interesting. And when I say some of these names, name like Caterpillar down from, I think, 150 down to 113 in a month, month and a half. I mean, that's not going out of business anytime soon. And global growth will come back. So I think if you had a dollar, I would look to some of these beaten up industrials and I would still stay in healthcare, which actually has done pretty well. Thanks, Guy, for that more you know. Celeb, it is the biggest tech deal of the year. IBM buying Red Hat for $34 billion will bring you all the details. And we'll hear from the CEOs. We are live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. Much more Fast Money in just a few minutes. I just thought this was a great acquisition today. I think this is exactly what IBM should be doing. I'd like to congratulate Ginny. She has made a fabulous move acquiring Red Hat. And they're fantastic. And they've got a world-class management team, world-class products. We use it at Salesforce. Everybody knows they're the they are the heart of the cloud today. And now they're the heart of IBM. So congratulations to all IBM. Great job. That was Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff talking to Mad Money's Jim Cramer about IBM's $34 billion acquisition of Red Hat. This marks IBM's largest deal ever. It's one of the biggest mergers in tech history. But investors didn't seem to echo Benioff's enthusiasm today. IBM shares were down 4%. Red Hat shares surged 45%, still below the deal price, though. Guy, you've been red hot on Red Hat. It was a fast pitch, or as you call power pitch. I love the power pitch. About a year plus ago. Yeah, but I mean, the stock's actually gone from 175 to the levels that it saw prior to this. So it's going straight down now in pretty much a straight line over the last month and a half. And, and trust me, I didn't, when I made that power pitch, I didn't see IBM coming in and paying a 64% premium. What's interesting, though, a month, two months ago, this was actually where the stock was trading, where we basically closed today. So although it's a huge premium off Friday's close, we have seen the stock trade here before. Why is IBM lower? Maybe they're grasping for growth in an, era, in a, in an environment where maybe they shouldn't be grasping. And no more buybacks. For anything. No more buybacks, buybacks, which, by the way, again, one of the unintended consequences of the Fed made corporate America lazy because they could borrow money cheap, buy back their stock. I would submit IBM is absolutely and um, point A for that uh, argument. And number three is, I know Mark Benioff would wax poetic about it. Why did he do that? Because it's, it, it's his company now. It's worth a lot more than it was on Friday's close. So although, listen, I love Red Hat. I love the company. I think IBM is stretching here. Well, it, it's interesting because it's, it's not as if IBM was being rewarded for no growth and paying a dividend. So um, I think making an aggressive move with their cash pile um, is something that at least perversely the market wanted them to do, and yet maybe they overpaid. In other words, if this was really about the price and how much they overpaid for it, this hybrid cloud space is clearly the place that they want to be playing, and we know that that model has been totally validated by the market. So, yes, a smart move at what price 
seems like it was expensive. All right, you can catch the full interview with Jim Cramer and Mark Benioff on a jam-packed Mad Money tonight. We'll also hear from the IBM and Red Hat CEOs. That is at the top of the hour. Up next, final trades on this wild day on Wall Street. Time for the final trade. Tim. While not defensive, I think Lowe's has really underperformed this move and relative to Home Depot, actually overly cheap. Go out and buy Lowe's. Karen. Yes, I wish it weren't up today because it was up 3%. I hate buying it on a up 3% day, but I like Macy's. Very cheap here. I'm, I believe in the American consumer. XLU, the utilities ETF. It's been green while the rest of the market's red. Stay with utilities if you think the market is still going lower. Guy. Impervious. Not a great haiku word because no, it's, it's only terrible. four salons. Yeah. It's terrible. But big cap pharma has been impervious. impervious. Eli Lilly. I have the tiger. That does it for us here on Fast. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.